U.S. Navy history arriving. All right, welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and over there is Stephen, the XO. Hey there, everyone. So do you remember what we were talking about last week, Stephen? I believe we had wrapped up the various battles that occurred on Lake Ontario. We were just about there. We were getting into the cleanup phase, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. The after effects of the Lake Wars, and then uh, we'll get into another battle. We'll get into the Battle of Plattsburgh today. Sounds excellent. Let's cast off. Let's get underway. So last week we were talking about how, what was going on with the British, with the Doan Frigate house, storehouse. Remember that? Yep. Yep. The uh, decommissioned, in quotes, Navy that was ready to be recommissioned in a matter of days. Right. So the America squadron also quickly fell into disrepair. It had been acknowledged that when they were built, they were going to only last five or six years. Because they had really green wood. I'm no expert, but don't you usually want to avoid using living wood for uh, any sort of carpentry? Yes, but also remember, we were in an arms race. It's the principle of the thing. You maintain your craftsmanship and quality. Usually, but when you're trying to outbuild the British for a battle that will never happen because you're too scared of fighting each other? Fair enough, I suppose. Now, there was a survivor of the unfinished battleship New Orleans. She was enclosed in a shed on a slipway. However, the shed collapsed in 1881, so the remains of the boat were sold in 83. Now, as we discussed before, neither side had been prepared to risk anything or everything in a decisive attack on a enemy fleet or naval base. So the result of all this construction on Lake Ontario was just an expensive draw. And the great demands for men and material made by both the English and the Americans really adversely affected a lot of the other parts of the war effort. Just because a lot of resources were being dedicated to a feel the battle that never really came to be. Yep. A lot of resources, a lot of money. Now the Americans had been based at Sackett's Harbor and this very small town, well, they were really unable to cope with how many sailors soldiers and shipwrights were there, which resulted in a lot of deaths from exposure, just the low temperatures and low food rations. And then they also died a lot from the diseases during the summer. The Blackwater Creek is there. It, it had no fresh water flowing into it. So it really quickly began to become a sewer. Oh, oh no. So and sewer equals disease. And this is before germ theory is established. So, yeah, by all means, Billy Bob, go on and bathe down in that uh, there creek. Yeah, the water's brown, but don't don't pay it no heat. It's still water. You can still drink it afterwards, too. I'm going to go throw up now. <laughs> <laughs> Just remember, Captain, out in front of the men. That hurts morale. Yeah, thankfully, they're down below. So on the British side, the effort that was required to ship all of the ordnance that they needed and the stores of naval supplies, which they took up the St. Lawrence River, it prevented them from deploying large enough numbers into Upper Canada to be able to do anything. Provost, he said that he paid 1,000 pounds to transport one huge cable for the battleship St. Lawrence to Kingston, and then complained of Yao's squadron who preempted the entire transport service up the St. Lawrence. So both Yao and Chauncey have 
Well, they were criticized for their unwillingness to act decisively and for all the long, hugely rambling excuses that they made for all their setbacks. Now, Chauncey, he's received more criticism from historians than Yao. But uh, Roosevelt, he argued that since overall the American strategy was offensive, the American forces on Lake Ontario should have risked an attack against Kingston or that Chauncey should have sought an all-out battle against Yao's squadron when the opportunity was offered. And as we know, there were plenty of opportunities. Yeah, yeah, you can only tiptoe around each other for so long before it just becomes a question of whether they just want to look like they're trying. They just wanted to play with their toys and not risk getting hurt. And you know, I, I can't hold that against them because big toys are fun, but... Oh, yeah. It, it, and if they're your toys, by all means, keep playing with them. But if it's wartime and it's not you that's paying for them, there are duties that are expected to be done with those toys. Mm-hmm. But, you know, instead, Chauncey, he, time after time after time, he shied away from any attack on Kingston and failed to pursue Yao to his utter destruction after the Battle of New York on uh, September 28th, 1813. And then after the attack from the British on Sackett's Harbor, Chauncey hampered continuously on targets other than Yao's ships. So he either kept his vessels in port waiting for more ships, or he just refused to use them to support the army's attacks elsewhere. Now, on the British side, under Governor General Provost, he was defensive for most of the war. Yao needed only to avoid defeat, which, you know, he actually did succeed in that. <laughs> now, British historians have argued that he did this at a cost of other operations, which is the exact same thing American historians are saying about Chauncey. For example, Yao hoarded men in supplies and failed to, to use these efficiently on Lake Erie with the squadron, which contributed to their complete defeat. Now, just a smaller effort on Lake Chaplin to construct battleships on Lake Ontario would have made British victory on Lake Chaplin a certainty. Instead, they just chased each other back to ports and probably mooned each other from the decks of their boats while they were in port. I'm just imagining that scene from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, just making it American and British instead of uh, English and French. Yeah, it seems there was a lot of that going back and forth on the lakes. So any uh, thoughts about this whole debacle before we move on to the Battle of Plattsburgh? Um, like many things in this war, the rules are made up, the points don't matter, it was all pointless. Just pick a strategy, stick to it, don't keep getting cold feet, and uh, stop using green wood. That's a terrible idea, and I'm not even a carpenter, and I know that. Very good advice. Very good. I think we shall try to follow that in the future. Wonderful. So, the Battle of Plattsburgh. Yes. It was known as the Battle of Lake Chaplin, and it ended the final invasion of the northern states of the U.S. during this war. So the British Army was under Lieutenant General Sir George Provost, and there was a naval squadron under Captain George Downing, and they both converged on the lakeside town of Plattsburgh, which was defended by the U.S. troops under Brigadier General Alexander Macomb and a bunch of ships commanded by Master Commandant Thomas McDowell. 
So Downey's squadron attacked shortly after dawn on September 11th, 1814, and then was defeated after a hardly fought fight in which he was killed. So Provost abandoned the attack by land against Macomb's defenses and retreated to Canada. He stated that if Plattsburgh was captured, he would not be able to supply it without control of the lake. So it's, okay. it's just an excuse to get out of there once the other commanding officer was killed. Because he, as we already know, he didn't want to be there. No, no, he did not. So this battle took place shortly before the signing of the Treaty of Ghent. The American victory denied the British negotiators at Ghent any leverage for territorial claims. So, in other words, they wouldn't be able to keep the territory they had gained during the war. Right, right. I, I recall last episode we were talking about um, Duke of Wellington saying, you all have very, very inflated egos if you think you have any right to ask the Americans for territory considering your performance in the war and all factors considered. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in 1814, most of the army for on the Britain side was in the Peninsula War because of Napoleon. Right. So once he left, Britain took the opportunity to send 16,000 troops from the Peninsula to garrisons here in the U.S. Now, several experienced major generals were detached from the Duke of Wellington's army to command the 16,000 troops. The Secretary of War for the colonies, the Earl of Bathurst, was given instructions to give to Lieutenant General Sir George Provost, who was then the Commander-in-Chief in Canada and the Governor General of the Canada, and said to him to launch offenses into American territory, but cautioned him, saying, don't go too far and, and risk getting cut off. Bather suggested to Provost that he should give first priority to attacking Sackett's Harbor, which is on Lake Ontario, where the American fleet on this lake was based, and then seize control of Lake Chaplin as a secondary objective. Now, Provost, he lacked a means to transport all the troops necessary for an attack at Sackett's Harbor, and then supply them from the St. Lawrence River. So... Also, the American ships that controlled the lake made an attack impossible until the British could launch the first-rate ship, which was the HMS St. Lawrence on October 15th, which ended up being way too late in the year to start major operations. And that, you know, annoying little peace treaty certainly threw a complication into that plan as well. Oh, it will, yes. So Provost prepared to launch his offensive up the Richelieu River. Now, his choice of route on reaching the lake, well, he decided this because of the attitude of the American state of Vermont, which is on the eastern side of the lake. Vermont had shown itself to be, well, less than very wholeheartedly behind the war, and its people were ready to trade with the British and were starting to supply them with all the cattle that they needed. And then they also supplied military storage such as masts and spars for those warships that were on the lake. So Provost was thinking, we need to spare Vermont from becoming a battlefield. So he decided to advance down the western side of New York State instead of on the Vermont side. And then, so the main American position on that, on the New York State side, was Plattsburgh. Mm -hmm. Now, was so there a particular reason why he wanted to avoid an engagement there? In Vermont? To make sure that it doesn't become a war 
wasteland to keep that trade going for the supplies he needed. Mm, okay. If Vermont became a battlefield, then the supplies would stop. Okay, that makes sense because, yep, New York, largest civilian population, at least now, I imagine that was also reflected back in the early 1800s. So for me, that was just, uh, yeah, you're still putting a lot of civilians in danger with New York. What's the difference here? But thank you for clearing that up. Oh, you're more than welcome. Now, Provost, he organized his troops to carry out an invasion. He, he organized them into division numbering 11,000 under Major General Sir Francis D. Rottenberg, who was the Lieutenant Governor of Lower Canada. Now, this division consisted of the 1st Brigade of Veterans of the Peninsular War under Major General Frederick Phillips Robinson, which comprised of the 327th, 39th, 76th, and 88th Regiments of the Foot. The 2nd the Brigade of Troops, which were already serving in Canada under Major General Thomas Brisbane, was made up of the 2-8th, the 13th, and the 49th Regiments of the Foot. The Regiment de Muron, the Canadian Voltigeurs, and the Canadian Chasseurs, and the 3rd Brigade of Troops from the Peninsula and various garrisons under Major General Manly Power, which consisted of the 3rd, 5th, 127th, and 58th Regiments of the Foot. And then each brigade was supported by a battery of five six-pounders, and one five-and-a-half-inch howitzer from the Royal Artillery. Now, is there a difference between a howitzer and a cannon, aside from howitzer would be compared to a mortar, and then it probably fires in an arc, and the cannon is for direct support? That's exactly what you're looking at. Oh, okay. Yep. It's all artillery. Let's go low. Yeah, it's all artillery, but yeah, one is more directional, one's more, let's go higher. So there's also a squadron of the 19th Light Dragons, attached to this force. Now, I know you said dragons. Do you mean dragoons? There was also a squadron of the 19th Light Dragoons that were attached to this force. I was going to say, I, I know the British had the, every material advantage, but I mean, they had freaking dragons? I thought yes, the crowd didn't have access to that after Arthur. No, they, they have dragons in storage. That's oh. where all the dragons went. They're in the okay. Tower of London. I knew it. <laughs> now, there was some tension with the forces between the brigade and the regimental commanders. These guys were veterans of the Peninsula War and also of earlier fighting in Upper Canada. So Provost, he did not make friends because he complained about the standards of dress of the troops from the Peninsular Army, where the Duke of Wellington had emphasized musketry and being very quick to turn out. Wait, so his problem was... Where these guys were veterans, incredibly experienced, great at their jobs, but they were not ready for parade at a moment's notice. Exactly. Not not ready. They were ready for action. Drop of a hat. No problem. But they were not ready for parade. Right. Wellington had said, I want you guys to be crack shots and able to get into battle very quickly. And Provost said, I want you to look pretty. Well, if that doesn't describe the War of 1812, I don't know what does. It's Provost for you. Do nothing and look great doing it. it. Look great not doing it. Right. And this just shows you how Provost didn't have extensive experience of, of battle, which the other brigade commanders did. So Provost's quartermaster general, Major General Thomas Sidney Backwith, he was a veteran of the early part of the Peninsular Campaign and also of operations in Chesapeake Bay in 1813. But even he was talked about for failures in intelligence. 
Now, on the American side, Major General George Izzard was the commander of the Northern Army, and he deployed along the northeastern frontier. In late August, the Secretary of War, John Armstrong, he ordered Izzard to take the majority of his force, which numbered around 4,000, to go to Sackett's Harbor to reinforce them. So Izzard left on August 23rd, which left Brigadier General Alexander McComb in command at Plattsburgh with about 1,500 American regulars. Most of these guys were recruits, invalids, or detachments of just whatever. Pretty much they had a rifle, a can-do attitude, uh, and maybe two shoes. Maybe. Usually about one and a half shoes. And probably lucky to have a rifle. I mean, the worst case scenario, they grab a stick and yell bang. You'd be surprised how effective that can be. (laughs) Oh, did I just inadvertently give a spoiler for something soon? Doubtful. So, McComb, he ordered General Benjamin Morse to bring the New York militia and appeal to the governor of Vermont for militia volunteers. So up to 2,000 militia eventually did come to Plattsburgh. However, most of the militia units were untrained and hundreds of them were unfit for duty. So he put them to use digging trenches and building fortifications. He's like, I'm going to get you in a shape then. Dig, build. Ah, uh, but I don't want to dig and build. I want to shoot British people. You got to dig and build first. I immediately regret volunteering to enter this war. Well, too bad. You signed the line. You dig and build, or you get shot. Wait, you can get shot in the army? Oh, yeah. So, McComb's main position was on a ridge on the south bank of the Sarnak River. So, McComb's main position was on the ridge of the south bank of the Saranac River. It's defenses had been laid out by Major Joseph Gilbert Cotton, who was Izzard's senior engineering officer, and it consisted of three redoubts and two blockhouses linked by fieldworks. They thought that this position was well enough supplied and fortified to withstand about three weeks of siege, even if the American ships on the lake were defeated and Plattsburgh was cut off. So after Izzard's left with his division, Macomb continued to improve the defenses. He even created an invalid battery on Crab Island, where they put up a hospital. And it was to be manned by sick or wounded sailors, or soldiers, who were at least fit to fire the cannon. Yeah, I I feel like that might be a labor law violation, if such a thing existed back in 1814. But I, I can't imagine a doctor signing up, well, you got a concussion. But your back still works. Put this uh, cannonball in that barrel, and then get out of the way. Well, even if the labor laws did exist back then, they still don't apply to the military. Oh. Yeah, when you're in the military, you're property, not people. Well, that just sounds like slavery with extra steps. It is slavery with extra steps. So, the townspeople of Plattsburg, what do you think they thought? Could you idiots fight anywhere else but here, please? Well, they didn't have any faith at all in Macomb. Mm-hmm. So by September, just about all of the 3,000 inhabitants ran away, which means that Plattsburgh was occupied only by the American army. So the British, they had gained naval superiority on Lake Chaplin on June 1st of 1813, when two American sloops chased the British gunboats into the Richelieu River and were forced to surrender when they got becalmed because they were also trapped by the British artillery on the banks of the river. So they were taking 
to the British Naval Establishment at Iliox Knox under Commander Daniel Prigg. And the crews of these boats were used to reinforce the seamen being drafted from the ships of war in Quebec under Commander Thomas Evard, who was senior to Prigg, so he just decided to take command temporarily. Okay. So they took 946 troops under Lieutenant Colonel John Murray of the 100th Regiment of Foot and raided a lot of different settlements on both the New York and Vermont side of Lake Champlain during summer and autumn of 1813. Now, when you say raid, like supplies, just destruction of property and spreading terror among civilians and making the military look bad, like what was the overall objective or do we not know? To grab supplies. Okay. You know, livestock, um, food stores, food stores. Yeah. Powder, ammunition, the works. Probably not that because that would be more at the military locations instead of civilian locations. But yeah, more, more food supplies, maybe even, you know, drafting a few more men. So the losses that these guys inflicted and the restriction that they imposed on the movement of men and supplies to Plattsburgh contributed to the defeat of Major General Wade Hampton's advance against Montreal, which finally ended the Battle of the Chattanooga. And then Lieutenant Thomas McDowell commanded the American naval forces on the lake. And they established a base at Otter Creek in Vermont and made several gunboats. Now, he had to compete with Commodore Isaac Chauncey, who was commanding on Lake Ontario for men, shipwrights, and supplies, and wasn't able to begin constructing actual large fighting vessels until his XO went to Washington to beg the Secretary of Navy, William Jones. I imagine he was like, Chauncey's taking all the stuff. Can we please have some? <laughs> so naval architect Noah Brown, he went to Otter Creek to, to start construction. And in April of 1814, the U.S. launched the Corvette USS Saratoga of 26 guns and the schooner USS Ticonderoga of 14 guns, who was actually originally a partly completed steam vessel. Huh. So together with the existing sloop-rigged USS Preble of seven guns, these two new boats gave the Americans naval superiority and allowed them to establish and supply Plattsburgh. And these supplies came in only a few days before the Battle of Plattsburgh. The Americans also completed the 20-gun brig USS Eagle. Still good timing. Hopefully this brig goes better than the uh, other ones. So the loss of supremacy prompted the British to construct the 36-gun frigate HMS Confidence. And Captain George Downey was given command soon after it was launched on August 25th. Like McDonnell, Downey had a very hard time getting men and material from senior officers on Lake Ontario. And McDonnell had intercepted several spars which had been sold to Britain by, well, the Vermont. Now, Downey could promise complete confidence on September 15th, and the frigate's crew would have no experience whatsoever. Now, Provost, he was very, very anxious to start his campaign as early as he could because he wanted to avoid the bad weather of, you know, winter, late autumn. Understandable. So he continually said to Downey to get confidence 
ready for battle quickly, very quickly. Get it going, get it going, get it going. So then on August 31st, Provost, he began his march south. And Macomb sent forward 450 men under Captain Spruill and Major John E. Wool. 110 of these riflemen were under Major Daniel Appling. 700 New York militia under Major General Benjamin Moores and two six-pound guns under Captain Lawrence, who were supposed to fight a delaying action. Now, Chazi, New York, they made contact with the British. So the Americans slowly fell back, setting up roadblocks, burning bridges, and mislabeled the streets <laughs> to slow down the British. When it but, out, resort to uh, middle and high school pranks. You'd actually be surprised how effective that can be. I'm pretty sure that the Germans did that as they retreated back towards Germany during World War II. Oh, I mean, yeah, I suppose before, if you don't have maps of the local area and you're just relying on sympathetic locals, like, you know, go on down Barry Street, take a left at Charles, and then keep on going for two miles. The courthouse will be right there. Yep. There's no GPS during this time. <laughs> but, you know, the British, they still advanced steadily. They actually didn't even come out of column marching. They didn't even return fire. Except by the flight guard. Were they at least uh, parade ready per Provost's uh, instructions? Oh, they had to be pretty. Okay. That, shiny, that's what really matters. Had a spit shine on their boots, had shiny buttons. But, I mean, the shinier the buttons, the better the target. Yeah. Takes an awful lot of shine to be so shiny you're blinding. So Provost, he reached Plattsburgh on September 6th. And the American rear guards retreated across the Saranac. They teared up the planks on the bridges, which did not allow Provost to immediately attack. So on September 7th, he decided to order Major General Robinson to cross the Saranac. But Robinson's was very annoyed at Provost because he gave him no intelligence on the American defenses or even gave him a map to how the local geography was. <laughs> he pretty much pointed and said, go get him. You got this, champ. I believe in you. So they only made some tentative attacks across bridges that might have been left or reconstructed and were easily repulsed by Wool's regulars. So Provost does what Provost does best. He abandoned his efforts to cross the river for right then and there and decided to start building stuff like batteries. He likes to retreat and build. So the Americans decided they're going to use cannonballs heated red hot, and they set fire to 16 buildings in Plattsburgh, which the British were using as cover. And this forced the British to withdraw further from Plattsburgh. So on September 9th, a night raid was held across the Saranac River. 50 Americans led by Captain George McGlasson. They destroyed a British Congrave rocket battery, which was only 500 yards from Fort Brown, which was one of three American fortifications. So there was a lot of skirmishes, a lot of exchanges of artillery fire. And then the British located a ford across the Saranac, three miles north of Macomb's defenses. So Provost said, well, once Downey ships get here, we're going to attack the American ships in Plattsburgh Bay. At the same time, Brisbane would make a fake attack across the bridges over the Saranac and Robinson's brigade would cross the ford to make the main attack against the American left flank, which would be also supported by Major General Powers' brigade. 
And then once the Americans fleet had been defeated, Brisbane would make his fake attack into a real attack. So McDowell, he sent some of his gunboats to harass Provost's advance, but he knew he was outgunned, particularly in the long guns. So he withdrew to Plattsburgh Bay, where the British would have to engage them at close range, rendering the long guns advantage moot. It would also make the American British squadrons roughly even in numbers, and the carronades would equal the weight of shot. So he used this time before Downey got there to drill sailors and prepare to fight at anchor. So he used it to train guys. Okay. He anchored his ships in a line from north to south. They were in the order Eagle, Saratoga, Ticonderoga, and Preble. They all had their bows and stern anchors with springs attached to the anchor cables to allow the ships to be slewed through a wide arc. Now, uh, for those of us not familiar with sailing, when you say slewed, does that mean like sailing while being on anchor still? Like you're kind of on the leash? So you can flip around and use the other broadside while the one's uh, reloading? Huh. Ten American gunboats were also anchored between these larger vessels. Which made a, which made what? One, two, three. So, so that made 14 vessels in total. So the British sloops and gunboats under Commander Prigg were already on the lake at an anchor near Chazzy. They had set up a battery on Isle Le in Vermont. And it took two days to tow the frigate Confidence up the Sorrel River against both wind and current. Now Downey finally joined the squadron on September 9th. And the carpenters and riggers were still at work on the frigate. And the crew, who were very short-handed, was eventually augmented by a company of the 39th foot. So they said, hey, soldiers, you're now sailors. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, it's just like being in the army, except on water. Here's a five-minute swimming lesson. Most sailors didn't know how to swim at this day and age. Oh, no, I don't think that was kind of a standardized part of basic training until mid-20th century. I'm not sure when it happened. It was during my basic, and I believe it was during my father's basic. So that covers 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember hearing uh, an anecdote about how during uh, Pearl Harbor, a lot of the sailors did not know how to swim. Yeah. So Downey didn't want to make Provost angry because he was unable to attack on the 10th of September because the wind was not in their favor. So during the night... When the wind shifted to the northeast, it made the attack feasible. And so they sailed very early in the morning on the 11th, then announced their presence to Provost by firing their guns without a shot. So they didn't load a cannonball and fire their guns to let Provost know, hey, we're here. <laughs> so fun knowledge, firing them without shot is actually called scaling. And it's used to clear scale and rust from the barrels. What scale? It is deposit that's built up from everything that it's used. So, like, uh, just like the scum that builds up in a cast iron pan, if you uh, are bad about seasoning it semi-regularly. Yeah, something like that. Scale is different in my, in my machinist mate days than in, you know, cannon stuff. Right. So, just before dawn, Downey, he sent out a party to to find out what the Americans' dispositions were, and then ordered the British squadron to attack. 
He addressed his crew and told him that the British army would storm Plattsburgh as soon as they engaged. So at about 0900, the British squadron, they came around Cumberland Head. They were close hauled in a line abreast with the large ships to the north at first in the order of Chubb, Linnet, Confidence, and Finch. And then the gunboats were to the south. So the wind was light and variable. So Downey was not able to maneuver the confidence to the place that he wanted it, which... Oh, audacity just closed on me. Uh-oh. Um, okay, well, um, let me... All right, uh, U.S. Navy History Podcast 14 now has no audio on my audacity. Oh, no. This is why we record on Skype as well? This is why we record on Skype as well. <laughs> okay, well, that was a thing. Uh, I suppose we wrap up this battle and, uh... Actually, we'll just leave it right here with the order of the gunships. All right. Next time on U.S. Navy History Podcast. Mm, the battle. <laughs> uh, this thing's Terribly sorry, folks. The uh, XO's recording software just decided to uh, crash. So we'll be back next week. The same Navy time, same Navy channel. All right, guys. Well, thank you for joining us. Sorry about the technical difficulties for the for this episode. We will try to work that out and get it fixed next time. In the meantime, give us a shout. You can email us at usnavyhistorypodcast.gmail.com. You can also tweet at us now at usnhistorypod. Anything you would like to say before I keel haul you for all these technical issues that you've been having lately? Uh, can't speak right now, Captain. Bailing water out of my software. And as always, fair winds and following sea. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing 2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-2-